As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This is a special bonus episode of the show. Uh, I felt like it just couldn't wait uh, until the end of next week. It's a conversation about the Philando Castile verdict with two people who I knew would have insightful and uncomfortable things to say about it. My colleague Jane Coaston from MTV and Greg Doucette a.k.a. The Weed Lawyer, uh, both of whom uh, are longtime friends of the pod and have been guests on previous episodes. That's all this show is about. Stay tuned. I'd like to welcome to the show Jane Coaston, who is my colleague at MTV News. Welcome to the show, Jane. Hello. And Greg Doucette, another show regular friend of the pod. He is a criminal defense attorney, a.k.a. The Weed Lawyer, uh, in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you for being on the show, Greg. Hey, Anna. Thank you for having me. So actually, you know, it's funny. I, uh, I've known all week what we're going to talk about, and I was just about to start the conversation with you guys. And I flashed back to Friday, and I got upset all over again just now. Right. Oh, boy. I, was, I, I can't say I was surprised, but, I mean, it's frustrating. It's definitely frustrating. And, and that's actually where I kind of wanted to start, which you said you can't say you're surprised. One of the things I, I went, I just experienced the sorrow all over again, but I quickly just went to anger when you said I wasn't surprised. I'm not angry at you. What what got me to anger pretty quickly um, on the Internet was the reaction I saw from a lot of I'm just a lot of white people. Using the exact word surprise or unbelievable or. Right shocking uh jane feel free to jump in i'm sure you saw some right. of the same stuff um, right which it, it seemed yeah that seemed really i i think it's it's interesting it was kind of one of those like i'm shocked shocked that there's gambling going on in this establishment moment mm-hmm. <laughs> like right. you're you're surprised that a police officer was found not guilty of like or acquitted of manslaughter charges and dangerous discharge of a firearm when they shot someone who is a black man. Wow. Stunning news. Yeah, it was it and it was and I I, I say, I mean, maybe I don't I know if I have grounds for it to be offended, you know, um I, but maybe just as a human I can be because the, I feel like the one reaction we shouldn't have right now is shock and surprise. I mean, it's a tragedy and it's terrible and it's terrible to the degree that it's hard to process. And, I, and I'm and i going to be generous, I think, and, and that's what a lot of people were actually saying is that this is difficult to process. And also, I don't understand. I think the right. shocking and surprising stuff was really like white speak for I don't understand. 
I don't understand how this happened. And that's why I wanted to talk to you guys, because I think you can shed some light on how this happened. Specifically, I think, Greg, I know you, you wanted me to make sure people know you're not licensed to practice in Minnesota. You are a lawyer, criminal defense lawyer, um, but you, you're an observer of this phenomenon. Like, that's something you've developed oh, yeah. a lot of expertise in. So uh, you said, like yourself, you weren't surprised. But tell us a little bit about how you, the lens that you see this case through, and maybe try and answer that question that some people have, which they convey as surprise, which is how did this happen? Well, I mean, it's the challenge you've got is that there are so many different pieces to it. You know, first look at our case law on police brutality to begin with. Our laws are set up in a way that individual officers are almost never held accountable for anything. They are rarely disciplined. If you try to sue them in civil court, we have this doctrine called qualified immunity, where if someone is in the performance of their duties, they cannot be held liable unless they violate what is called, quote, a clearly established constitutional right. And then you take the United States Supreme Court interpreting what clearly established meant. And, you know, for example, we had this case back in January called White v. Pauley that was a unanimous decision. It was an eight to zero decision where the court essentially said that sneaking up to someone's house, they come out with a gun to defend themselves and police shoot them dead. Police can't be sued for that because it's not clearly established that you have a constitutional right to defend your home. Huh. You know, and I, I actually thought recent... that was the opposite. <laughs> I mean, right. we don't have a constitutional right to defend our home. So there are several statutes that do. And it's something where if you were if you as the person who were defending your home were prosecuted criminally, you have the castle doctrine to defend yourself. Uh-huh. But if you were to sue the police who killed you civilly. The judges essentially kind of hand waved all of that away to say that, well, the police didn't know any better because there wasn't any precedent at that point. Um, There was a case. I can't remember the name of it. It would have been around April ish where Justice Sotomayor had a dissent. And in it, one, it was a fire dissent and everyone should read it. Okay, so it's Ricardo Salazar Limon versus the city of Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. What the Supreme Court did in that case was they denied a writ of certiorari entirely. They're not going to consider the case at all. It was dismissed by the Court of Appeals, uh, or rather it was dismissed by the District Court. The Court of Appeals affirmed the dismissal. Supreme Court didn't want to consider it. Um, And Sotomayor writes this fire dissent where not only does she mention that the facts in that particular case were in dispute and should have gone to a jury, but she also has a footnote where she compiles multiple other cases involving people of color killed by police where the Supreme Court has refused to even consider lower court dismissals of them. So what you get is this really circular argument of you haven't violated a clearly established right because there's no precedent for it, but we never get to establish the precedent for it because your case has been dismissed before it ever goes to a jury. So there's just no way at all for a normal taxpaying civilian of any kind to develop the case law that's needed to hold the police accountable. But even then, in those few cases where a suit is settled, it's not the individual officer that suffers anything. There's an insurance policy that the department has. Taxpayers pay for the settlements. Hmm. So you got that whole piece of it. 
at the outset that police are essentially uh, encouraged to exceed their authority because we've got nothing in place to limit that. But then you look at the trial process where, take for example, jury selection. Juries are chosen at random from a master pool. That pool is created from compiling different government databases. So voter registration records, uh, property ownership records, some states use uh, driver's license databases. But if you look at who's in those pools, you have a a disproportionate number of people of color who don't own a home, Mm -hmm. aren't registered to vote, have had their license suspended for some reason or another. So they're not even among the people that can randomly be selected for the jury pool. Then this pool of jurors shows up. You have to be one of those few cases where a case actually needs a jury. The bulk of them are pled down because we have so many things that are criminalized and the penalties are so severe that well over 95% of all criminal cases are handled by a plea deal. Then let's assume for the sake of argument, there is a jury trial. This jury pool is picked. You know, you take the first, say, 30 jurors that go into the courtroom, 12 of those go into the box, and you have what's called voir dire, where the attorneys for each side ask jurors questions to ensure that they can be impartial. And what you often see happen is that people of color are disproportionately struck by the prosecution because they're seen as being favorable to the defense. There's actually a United States court case, uh, Batson, that dealt with challenging jury selection for racial bias. So the Supreme Court said you can't racially get rid of people of color. So now what will be done instead is they'll look at other ways. You know, have you had any prior interaction with the police? You know, do you dislike the police because of that, et cetera, et cetera, to try and peg down an argument? that they should still be removed, but for something other than the fact that they've got more melanin than everyone else. And of course, because, so, I mean, the statistically, if you ask someone, have you had an interaction with police, like you're you're probably going to be a person of color. Correct. Most people are going to yeah. say yes. And a disproportionate number of those are going to be people of color. Um, so, I think that that... Yeah. Go ahead, Jane. Uh, I think that that goes to something. Um, someone raised this point very, like on Twitter, that African Americans are more likely to have experiences with police. And I, I, I tweeted about how, for a lot of people, and I think that this is kind of the, uh, you know, kind of the underlying problem is that there are thousands of laws in every state and across this country in which it appears that certain people can disobey them, and certain people, if they disobey them, will die. Mm-hmm. For instance, uh, Sandra Bland had a, if I remember correctly, she had a broken taillight. Uh, you know, you have people who are playing with toy guns or who pick up a gun at a, um, you know, at a Walmart and die. And yet, you know, how many times have people been, you know, how many times have, have actual people been stopped for like turning, you know, of left hand turn without signaling and for some people that is like oh go on ahead you did this sorry and then for some people that is then grounds for a shooting right and i think that that's something that's very important um another thing i wanted to raise just talking about kind of the legal basis of this uh david french wrote a great piece for a national review about this which is that because you can police officers when they say like oh i was afraid juries will always take that as being like oh okay that sounds like something believable. And even in the um, 
Walter Scott case in which you have a unarmed black man running away, the officer said, you know, oh, I was afraid. I was scared with everything leading up to this. It was total fear. And he had no reason to be afraid. He had no reason to then plant a, you know, plant a taser on this, on Walter Scott's body. And yet the first jury deadlocked because when a police officer says he or she were afraid, they completely just go with that. Yeah. I mean, Greg, maybe you can speak to that because what was interesting about all the stuff you were laying out just now is that how little of it had to do with like police involved shootings, right? Like you were just describing kind of the legal landscape, including, you know, interactions with police, including jury selection. Uh, You know, it was stuff that didn't have to do with this particular case, but just the context for it that is that is the infrastructure that creates the situation where policemen are barely found guilty for shooting a black person, a person of color. Um, right. And I wonder if you could uh, get to a point where that people raised on the show could also be called a point people raised on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but th- this was about um, him being a police officer um, and uh, not about race. Like that was something that I, I some of my conservative compatriots, um, friends on the Internet seem to be really concerned about like um you know uh that squirrely dude um who's really young i can't remember his name but he was like he he tweeted what something about like i can't believe this happened or what could have caused this and i was like yeah whatever could be the case like whatever could be the reason and he was like it's not about race you know juries rarely find police officers guilty uh, greg right. could, could you unpack that so a little bit he, there, there are two different pieces to that both are one is right. One is I'm incredulous. All right. Juries are rarely ever going to find anything against an officer. Right. And a lot of that relates to the fact that we're trained from elementary school to respect police, listen to police, do what police say. Police can do no wrong. And there's an assumption that whenever an officer does something, we would in a vacuum perceive as bad. They only did it because the person they're dealing with had it coming for some reason. So when I said earlier that I'm not surprised by the result, if you look at the 12 jurors in the Castile case, you actually had several jury members that were very pro-police. Mm. You know, one of the ladies had all kinds of pro-police stuff on her Facebook page, and the judge said that was not grounds to have her removed. So at that point, I can't think of the uh, publication in uh, Minnesota. Tony Webster is one of the Twitter guys out there. He's at Webster on Twitter, has been following the case and sharing a lot of the information. But he had a link to a story that had you know, the profiles of all of the jurors. And you have two or three that it was apparent from the very beginning of the case were very police friendly. Mm-hmm. Those folks are not going to convict ever right. because to accept that an officer has done something that depraved, it ends up, you know, creating cognitive dissonance in your mind. You're uncomfortable because now these people that are sworn to serve and protect, you see they could potentially be bad. So I think the fact juries are not going to convict police is true. It's empirical. You know, we've only had a small number of cases where police have ever been charged. Out of that, there's an infinitesimal number of ones who've been convicted. The few actual convictions that have taken place, most of them are by a plea deal. Um, but the, you can't take race out of the equation because race is why people of color are disproportionately stopped. And implicit association or implicit bias, whichever term you want to use for it, 
is why people of color are perceived as being more dangerous by default. Right. You know, you look at, again at the Castile case. He told Philando when he approached that he had a taillight out. He said in his interview the next day that he had actually profiled him because of a wide set nose. Mm. And then there's deposition testimony where he said that, oh, well, he was smoking marijuana in the car. And if he would do that near his little girl, you know, what kind of um, care is he going to have for me? You know, those are the types of things that if you think of them individually, don't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> you know, the entire state of Colorado has legal marijuana. Multiple cars smell like it, but police aren't gunning down white stoners. Mm. You know, so it's something where you can't separate the culture from how it's carried out in real life. Well, I, I wanted to bring Jane in because um, she probably noticed something that, that about what you said when you said we are raised to think of the police as being, you know, our saviors and always doing the right thing. The we in that sentence is pretty important. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I was going to say, Greg, you and I were definitely raised that way. Like we were definitely raised with officer friendly and like the, the policeman is your friend. If something bad happens, go tell the police. Jane, would you like to step in and, and talk about what what the assumption in that we for a second? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when I was a kid, my dad. Um, so my my dad is black. My mom is white. My dad's about you know, six foot three. Black, large black guy whose favorite band is Steely Dan and who enjoys watching the Tour de France. Oh. And he was picking me up from ballet class when I was like five or six. So I was literally wearing a tutu. And he, my dad was driving his uh, Toyota Celica and we were going home and my dad gets pulled over. And my dad, and so I remember this because I was sitting in the passenger side and I don't, my dad seemed so nervous that I got nervous because, you know, when you're a little kid and your dad seems scared, that's like that's like ground zero for little kid terror. Because I was like, something must seriously be wrong here. So police officer walks up, looks in the car, does not say anything. He does not say like anyone's feeding, anyone's doing anything. He looks in the car, he looks at my dad, and then he sees me, a very small child wearing a little pink tutu. And I'm looking at him like, I, I believe my hair was an actual literal pigtail. Mm. And he looks at me and then he looks at my dad again and he says, Oh, okay. Keep going. And then walks back to the car. And I never, you know, I was too little for anyone to like discuss this with me. And I've never really figured out an answer to exactly what was going on. And it was, but it was such a strange event because I had no I had, I, you know, I lived in the vacuum you live in when you're a very small child, which is that my entire life is going to school and my parents. And I had no concept of issues relating to police brutality, especially, you know, I grew up in Cincinnati, which in 2001 was hit by, you know, riots over the shooting of Timothy Thomas, an unarmed black kid. Um, and but, and, you know, I had no concept of any of this. And yet I knew immediately, like, a police officer talking to my dad means something terrible could happen. I don't know what that thing was, but I already knew, like, this is bad. And it was funny because, you know, I went to a predominantly white school. And so we had police come in to do D.A.R.E., the mm -hmm. anti-drug program. But it was very funny because much of D.A.R.E. was telling you how, you know, marijuana was the root of all evil. But also this idea that, you know, 
like smoking marijuana would mean that you would be hanging out in bad areas. And then who knows Mm -hmm. what would happen to you. Mm. And it wasn't like smoking marijuana by itself is the problem. It's that, you know, first you start smoking marijuana, then you start buying marijuana. And to buy marijuana, you need to go somewhere bad, Mm -hmm. what in quotes, you know, whatever that would mean. And that would get you into trouble. And all, you know, because all of uh, my classmates were, you know, good little white kids living in suburban Cincinnati. And clearly they, you know, they might just get mixed up in something. They wouldn't have actually done anything wrong, but they just get somehow, you know, caught up in something bad happening. And so it's interesting because, you know, my, my idea of how you deal with the police, it's, it's very funny now because, you know, I know people, you know, I had an old roommate who, um, we, he, you know, he came home one night and our the house next door, there'd been a small fire and so there were cops everywhere. And my roommate, a tall white man, was very drunk. Let's keep that in mind. And he gets super upset because he's like, oh, you know, this might, we live in a, we live in a row house and the fire could have spread. And so apparently he just started yelling at the police for being like, why the fuck did this happen? How did this happen? And does anyone, you know, but basically the police are like, calm down, sir. Everything's okay. You don't need to worry about everything. And basically placating my roommate. I wasn't home at the time. But just this idea that you would be, and I remember hearing about this and being like, you yelled at the police and you're still here hmm. with us, talking to me, alive. And just this idea of this different comprehension, because I, you know, if I have any interactions with police officers, I am the most, I'm already a very polite person, as Anna can tell you. I become like the most polite person who has ever lived. I am so kind. I'm so gracious. I'm like very well behaved, like markedly well behaved. And it's interesting because I thought that that was something everyone did. And then, you know, I find out that there are people like, yeah, you know, I was at a music festival once and these cops got in the way. So I told them to go fuck themselves. I'm like, what? You did what now? And so it's interesting, this different kind of perception of what policing means, because for some people, mostly white people, interactions with the police are, you know, something either you haven't done anything, but something bad happened to somebody else and the police would never think that you were involved in it or the police are just getting in your way or something else is happening. But for me, it's always had the sense of like, if I do this wrong, something terrible is going to happen as a result of me interacting with law enforcement, even if I obviously haven't done anything at all. Greg, I want to turn to you about this, which is that I I saw you having some interactions with people on on the Twitter machine when they would be like, that's why we need, this is why we need body cams. This is this. And you kind of, I think you had a somewhat cynical response to some of the most often cited like remedies to this situation. Why is that? So, you know, I, let me say at the outset, I like body cams. I think they're important. I think every officer in every department, everywhere in the country should have one. The issue that we come across is that you have politicians who go out of their way to make sure that that stuff never sees the light of day. You know, we have here in North Carolina, for example, a law that when it passed, it was House Bill 972. It passed almost unanimously, both Republicans and Democrats. Um, there was only one Republican and one Democrat in the Senate to vote no. There was only, I think, six Republicans and maybe three Democrats to vote no in the House. But what that bill does 
is it created something where in the past our body cam footage was considered a public record and it was presumed that the public should have access to it unless disclosing it would compromise an ongoing investigation or there was some kind of privacy concern about the people who were in it. That law completely reversed that so that not only body cam footage, but dash cam footage, any other kind of police video is not a public record at all. It's been completely removed from it. And there's a very elaborate process you have to go through to get it. Only certain people can get the footage. And the legal standards the politicians wrote into the statute make it almost impossible for that footage to ever be released. So we're paying for these body cameras. We're paying to have all of this footage stored, but the politicians have ever have blocked any of that information from ever coming out. You know, so for example, last uh, last year, soon after the bill passed, you had the killing of Keith Scott out in Charlotte, and there was a lot of protest writing about that because the police department kept changing their story about what happened. The chief ended up changing his story at least four times within the 24 hours. The police, uh, the chief released that footage, but by doing so, technically he broke the law. Mm. So now we're in a scenario where if you are a law-abiding citizen or a news outlet or a family member and you want this video released, you can't get it in North Carolina. But if you're a police chief trying to defend your department, you can leak it, you can give it out, but no one's going to prosecute you for it. Mm. So having body cams are just a piece of the puzzle. That data has to be made available to the public so that we actually see what takes place. But even beyond that, you've got to change the rest of the legal structure because me watching on dash cam Philando Castillo get gunned down for a broken taillight, you know, doesn't change. You know, I get to see that video. OK, but the guy's still dead. You have to change the other spots in the system so that people aren't dying for this. And maybe this is a good time to get into the the missing conservative response here. Like the Philander Castile case is somewhat unusual because um, we have the the benefit of an incredibly um, picturesque victim, let's say. he was, you know, he worked at a school and the children there loved him. I actually know people that went to high school with him uh, in St. Paul, and he was pretty much universally considered an amazing guy, right? And he was also a legal gun owner. There were all these 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 things that, that made him an especially sympathetic figure, which shouldn't matter. Let's posit that. It shouldn't matter. And it, that is meant, though, that I think a lot of conservatives have gotten a little more involved in this case um, or a little more have commented on it a little more than, than in the past. But there has been a curious lacunae, Jane, hasn't there, in, a, in a conservative groups that have not really gotten involved? Well, I think that there is a hmm. – I think think that there is a conceptualization among some conservatives. And I will say that like there have been a lot of a fair number of conservative writers who are talking about this and who have spoken out. Like even people you know, like Dana Loesch, who works with the NRA, has been talking about this. I will say that, you know, I think you mentioned this, um, I'm not sure, Anna or Greg, um, that there's this idea that if the police do it, it can't be wrong. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, like, challenging one police officer would be kind of like, you know, if there's it, – it's kind of a weirdly, like, non-conservative idea that, like, 
one represents the whole when, you know, this is a, a political ideology that's based strongly on individuality, individuality. But there's this idea that if you start criticizing, if conservatives start criticizing the police, well, then like the entire construct of America will fall apart. And it's interesting seeing the replies on Twitter to Dana Loesch, like retweeting something about this or talking about how the verdict is wrong. And you see people saying like, you know, we, the police don't need this. This is like, this is going to put more cops at risk, which for one thing, I mean, if you're a police officer, I hope you can stand up to like three articles being written about how one officer did a bad thing. Like, come on. You're, you're like, you're not like, that's the most snowflakey thing I've ever heard in my life. But also this idea that, you know, being a police officer is not a, it's less of a job and more of a vocation. And it's almost similar to kind of what you see, um, what I remember, you know, when the, cause the first cat, when I was in grade school and high school, I went to Catholic school. And when a lot of the kind of sex abuse cases started coming out, there was this idea like, oh, you can't, you know, you can't criticize priests because if you criticize a priest, you're essentially criticizing the Catholic church. And that would be wrong because, you know, in today's liberal sexual society, you just can't have that. What, when, you know, the best thing to do is to say, these are some bad apples and we need to do something about this. And we need to do something with a construct that lets them do these things, which right. is kind of the same thing that we're seeing right now, which is, you know, if you have a police officer who is utterly terrified, so terrified that when a, you know, when a American citizen says, I have a gun because I am legally allowed to own it. And I am going to, you know, I, you, and then you're asked to reach for your license and then you get shot because you were reaching for the license that the police officer asked you to get. Like, that's not a good police officer. That's not good for the American justice system to have a police officer who's clearly not able to be, be a police officer. It's just not right. But I think that there is this idea within some facets of conservatism, um, I, kind of not on the libertarian side. I think that you, the kind of reason has been really leading the charge on issues that are that are like this, because of course libertarians are among the leaders on kind of state violence. But among some conservatives, there's this idea that the police are representative of American norms, and by criticizing the police or even a police officer, you are criticizing the construct that keeps America together. And and that's actually gets to the, the unspoken thing that I feel like is sort of undergirding this, right, which is like, where the fuck is the NRA? Um, and I think you've just explained why why they're missing from this conversation, like is because it's the perception that if we criticize, if we get involved in this case, it's somehow demonizing the police. I do right. wonder what would be the what would happen if this had been a white person who got shot by a policeman, a, a, a legal concealed carry um, owner. Who got shot by the police? I do kind of wonder if the NRA would be more involved. Um, but Greg, you chuckled a little bit. Do you want to jump in? Well, I think it's more than just the perception that police represent American norms. I think it's also money. Uh-huh. There are a lot of NRA members who are themselves law enforcement. So, like, if you look, for example, at some of the top NRA surrogates, you know, you've got like Colin Moore, who's got a uh, radio show on NRAnews.com. He had a Facebook post that was very lengthy about how. This was wrong, shouldn't have happened, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll never have Wayne LaPierre say anything because to do that, people end up not renewing their membership. And you can see that in the comments on the Facebook post that was made. You've got people telling this guy, oh, I can't believe you said that. That's outrageous. 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right, yeah, you've got I mean, people talking like, oh, I expect this from CNN. Like, you know, I, didn't exactly. come, I don't listen to you for some liberal, like, talking points or something, which just, like, if you've ever watched this guy's videos, he's kind of, like, he does videos for the NRA about yeah, and, like, a, he's very anti-gun control. And yet somehow just saying, like, this shouldn't have happened, and I think race may have played a role in it, people are very upset by it. Yeah, what I think is sort of weird about the rotten apple, um, you know, sort of uh, metaphor or even going to, I think, actually your Catholic Church pedophilia scandal um, parallel, Jane, is really interesting because what I feel like a lot of conservatives want in this situation is they want to both say it's just a few bad apples, um, but also they treat the bad apples as though to t- to take the bad apples out of the barrel would be to upset the entire barrel. Right. Right. (laughs) And I also think um, uh, kind of talking about Wayne LaPierre a little bit, um, people have pointed out that in the 90s, he was very vocal about the idea that under the Clinton administration, you know, people with badges could just bust into your home and violate your civil rights, which I'm kind of like, oh, you mean like what's happening Mm -hmm. right now? And it's very interesting because I think the NRA... Um, there was a, a leadership change that took place within the NRA as, long, as well as a move, I believe, when they moved from D.C. to Virginia that really kind of shifted from being like we represent oh, the gun. Know, the gun, gun ownership as a sport or like gun ownership for sports or for hunting to we represent people who own guns because they're afraid of black people. <laughs> and so it's interesting because you see in the, like, the mid-90s this idea that kind of this you know, you need to own a gun to strike back at the new world order and the idea that, you know, the government's going to come in in kind of a Ruby Ridge type uh, type scenario and try and, like, kill you or take your rights or something like that. And now you're seeing this happening, but not to the group that the NRA expected it to take place with. Right. There's this and there's this cognitive dissonance that's always been hard to get your head around uh, with, you know, sort of the conservative movement, which is that we both need to own guns in order to protect our civil liberties from federal encroachment. But also the police are heroes (laughs) and and universally so. Um, There's a joke that if you ever want to confuse a conservative, you send a policeman to his door and say, hello, sir, I'm here to take your guns. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Greg, I mean, I want to turn to you again, um, sort of for thinking through the next um, part of what might happen here. Um, you know, you yourself, uh, we did an interview with you early in an earlier podcast about how you became more involved in these issues and, and came to see um, the the racial component of civil liberties being, a, a, you know, something you could not ignore. And in fact, you're now an advocate, right? You're a criminal defense attorney and you're um, somebody who talks about racial justice. You're also a libertarian. We don't, I want to be clear. Um, we probably agree, disagree on other things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think are the things that, that can happen next that might get more people to understand the systematic problems here? That's a very loaded question. Because I think there's not a whole lot to be done, or that can be done, rather. Well, let me rephrase. There's a lot that can be done. It's not going to be done. Um, You know, with respect to understanding the cultural impact, you know, how it is that police, even people of color who happen to have a badge, how police by default see.
see other people of color as more threatening than white folks. You know, that's a conversation that's only going to really take effect if it's done one-on-one and it's going to take an eternity. I doubt it's ever going to be resolved in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime. What has to happen is that policy reforms have to be made that change how police interact with the citizenry. You know, we have this notion that you have the military whose job is to attack enemies of the state. You have the police whose job is to serve and protect the citizenry. We've merged those two for a very long time. You know, you've got police out in riot gear. You've got these nice uh, MRAPs going to different police departments once the Department of Defense stops using them. You know, the entire war on drugs has been going on for decades. It can't be a surprise that they see citizens as enemy combatants and your neighborhoods are foreign battlefields. You know, so there's a lot of changes, discrete changes that can be made with departments that can be made in state legislatures that can be made federally. And you've got to do all of that stuff to ever change how this is all operating. Like, you know, use, for example, taillight policing, where Philando, Sandra Bland, all these other people are pulled over because they supposedly have a light out. We say that that's for public safety, but really the reason why we have it is for police to have an excuse to approach someone in their car and start asking questions. If it were really that serious a public safety issue, they would take your car right then and not let you drive home. But instead, they give you a citation. They give you time to fix it. And if it's fixed, a, you know, any ticket you got will get dismissed most of the time. You, know? you don't have to pull people over for broken taillights. You've got their license plate number. You can punch that in. DMV will notify whoever the registered owner of the car is and say, hey, you got a tail laid out. You need to fix it. If it's not fixed within 30 or 60 days, we're going to revoke your license. Make it like a parking ticket, basically. Right, right. Or like speed cameras. You know, they can yeah. take a picture of your car and then you get in the mail. Here's a picture of your car. You have a broken tail light. Go fix it. Yeah, this is like a remarkably simple idea that seems... Like, it could be really important. You're right. I mean, I had never really thought about it. I mean, you're, if it is a public safety hazard, then we should no, let no one do it. And there is a kind of simple technological fix that would prevent people from being stopped and murdered. Right? Right. And it's something that we've started deploying here in Durham, North Carolina. You know, we had a new police chief come in about a year or so ago. And at the time, you know, our backlog for unprosecuted murders is at an all time high. We've got a gang problem that's growing out of control. We've got a lot of people getting shot and police were spending a lot of time pulling over random drivers. You know, so what the chief has said is that, you know, it's not that it's no longer a crime. It is still a crime, but we're reallocating our resources to focus on homicides, violent crime, stuff that actually affects the citizens and not randomly pulling over drivers as a way of trying to generate revenue or using it as an excuse to ask questions. Compare Durham to just, you know, 20 minutes south in Wake County, North Carolina. They issue so many traffic tickets in a given year that your odds of getting a ticket in a three-year time period are 100%. (laughs) They issue one ticket for every citizen every three years. The amount of money they bring in from speeding tickets alone is enough to fund the entire court system, every judge, every prosecutor, every public defender, every clerk within Wake County, just from speeding tickets. And there's still more money left over that the politicians can go below on whatever they want. Now, I'm, I'm curious, are you citing that as, as a goal or? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so it, it's something where my 
I want to end taillight policing. Uh-huh. There ends up being right. financial repercussions for that. I would rather have tax money funding the courts than using the courts as a profit generator for politicians. Right. Uh, Jane, do you want to add anything about what you see as uh, possibilities of moving forward? Um, I, I definitely agree with um, Greg on kind of ending taillight policing. I think that that kind of goes with the broken windows policing concept. But I think that that also goes to an idea that, you know, I talked about this. I think that, that I mean, the underlying issue for me is this idea of like, um, for me, but not for thee. This idea that, you know, how many, like, I know so many people who get so upset if they get stopped for speeding or if they get stopped for, like you said, a broken taillight. But if, you know, these same people were to hear that, you know, a Philando Castile is stopped and then shot for this. The, you know, their response is, well, he shouldn't have been breaking the law. Now, should he have been? Mm. But that, you know, that goes to this underlying idea that for some people, like breaking the law is an annoyance that you'll later tell people about at drinks because you mean you have to pay a $200 ticket. And for some people, breaking the law means they're going to die. And until we manage to make it clear that, you know, I personally, this is kind of my one of my relatively few libertarian viewpoints is that, you know, at a certain point when you have thousands of state and local laws that mean like tiny things that aren't illegal in some, in one County are illegal in another County. And I think anyone who has ever done like a road trip across the East coast knows that that's very true in that, like something's illegal in Delaware and it's not illegal in DC. Um, you know, there is a good chance that probably at this very moment that someone might be listening to this podcast, they are breaking a law and, and, you know, jaywalking or someone's doing something at the selling water, selling water on the um, Capitol Mall. Exactly. They are breaking a law at this very moment, probably while listening to this or doing something else, because I, you know, there are count, I believe that there are counties in Ohio. I remember this growing up where they were very strict about how loud you're supposed to play your radio in your car. Very strict. <laughs> and this idea that for some people that is, you know, oh, if I get stopped for, you know, if I got arrested for jaywalking, that would be a complete offense to my civic rights. But if someone, probably a black man, someone gets stopped for jaywalking and then arrested and then killed during the arrest, well, he shouldn't have been breaking the law, but I can. Like, it's it's really this interesting, and I mean interesting in a bad way, this idea that the law is not the law if some people can follow it and die, and some people don't have to follow it at all. Look, the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution guarantees citizens equal protection of the laws. That's the exact quote, you know. But in practice, that doesn't happen. It's more a aspirational amendment than it is a, a practical amendment. Because we do have people treated differently. You know, Harvey Silverglade uh, wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day that talks about Jane's point about overcriminalization and how there are so many laws that you're breaking at any given point in time. And how that has played out in practice is that it gives immense discretion to law enforcement to pull over whoever they want for whatever they want. And they'll find something that you've probably done wrong. You know, most police interactions end with not someone dying. But if someone is going to die, odds are very high that it's a person of color. And that's completely wrong, completely goes against the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, the Fifth Amendment. You know, it's just not who we're supposed to be, even though it's who we are. And that, I think, um, 
is going to be the end of our show. I want to thank you both uh, for coming on. This was a great discussion. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Anna. This has been great. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode. I will say, as usual, if you liked it, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts. A special thanks to my guests again, Jane Coaston and Greg Doucette. If you want to follow them on Twitter, they are at CJane87. I assume that's the year she was born. And then uh, Greg Doucette is at Greg underscore Doucette, which is D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. You can follow the show at Crooked underscore Friends. And of course, if you have thoughts that exceed 140 characters, please email us at withfriendslikepod at gmail. We read every letter. And that's it for this special episode of the show. We'll be back at the end of the week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.